Hello, and welcome to episode six of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogies podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Nee Lachlan. I'm happy to say that this podcast's audience is blossoming. Hello to my friends across five nations in Africa, 20 states in the U.S., and my neighbors north of the Canadian border. And yes, there's a new listener in the United Kingdom. I'm so glad you could join us. Grab an Eccles cake, make a brew, and draw up a chair for the fun. We're going to get into some etiquette and some practical how-tos today, because I don't want you to be a Jeffrey. But first, I want to acknowledge that February is Black History Month in the United States. I'm celebrating this year in a few different ways, and I wanted to alert you to them. Every day in February, you can find a new post about POC, or Persons of Color, genealogy on my Facebook page. It may be a link to a really good blog, or to some records at the National Archives, or even to a story about an individual African-American figure in American history. Regardless, you can get those in your Facebook feed daily if you like and follow my page, Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Also, I am actively expanding the links section at the bottom of my website, Ancestors AliveGenealogy.com. One column is dedicated to African American research, and you can check there for all kinds of links to all kinds of resources from DNA companies to blogs to Facebook groups. If you have a link that you'd like me to add, please email it to me or drop it in my contact page. And if it checks out, I'll add it. This is a pursuit based in the sharing of the love, and I'm here for you this day and every day. Finally, there is a really cool periodic Twitter discussion called Gen Chat. This past week's Gen Chat was about African American genealogy. You can find all of the associated posts by searching the hashtags Gen Chat, G E N C H A T, and P O C Genealogy on Twitter. Some really great, knowledgeable researchers participated, including Angela Walton Raji, Robin Smith, Renata Sanders, Dante Eubanks, Nika Sewell Smith, and Melissa Barker. In this thread, I also found a tasty genealogy YouTube livecast called Black Pro Gen. See all of these people and resources for some great information concerning African American or POC genealogy. But keep in mind that this isn't just about February. Every month is Black History Month because Black history is American history. Now, to this week's business. You're going to learn how harsh I can be because there are do's and don'ts in genealogy, and I feel pretty strongly about them, so get ready. When using online genealogy sites, there are a number of ways in which we have to dress for success. First, we have to treat ourselves, our research, and others with respect. Second, we have to input correct information and use the historical record as evidence to back up our assertions. I've been surprised to find that people buy expensive memberships in family tree websites and don't seem to understand that these things are prerequisites for success. You can unlearn bad research habits and you can even improve your manners if you want to. So if you don't want to lose your money on your Ancestry membership, keep listening. As I said up front, I don't want you to be a Jeffrey. What does that mean? Let me tell you the cautionary tale of Jeffrey. His real name isn't Jeffrey, it's something else, but for the sake of the story, let's just say it is. Periodically, as I'm sure you do, I get a message on Ancestry requesting access to a tree. It's not surprising. With a combination of my personal tree, 
clients' trees and student trees, along with the research trees for a book that I hope I will write someday, I have over 100 trees running right now on Ancestry. And unless my clients or students want their trees to be accessible, I keep those private as well, for reasons that I'll discuss in a minute. That means that these trees show up as hints in other people's searches, and from time to time, those folks want to see something that I control. But because I run over 100 trees, I need info. At the very least, I need the name of the tree that they want to see. I need the name of the ancestor or ancestors involved. I need a few specifics, like dates and places. I want to know how the researcher relates to the person they're asking about so that I can be sure that I'm not dealing with some sort of a fraudster or a fisher. And finally... I want a little respect. Not a lot, mind you, but some basic manners would do nicely. Now, most of the time, this is not a problem. But then every now and then, mm, okay. I have multiple DNA kits attached to my personal tree as well. And Jeffrey is a distant cousin. He sent me two unthreaded messages, one in August of 2017 and a separate one on New Year's Eve. His August message had the surnames Banks and Ogden in the subject line, and the message read like this. I see you have the above two, my mother was in Ogden, and on the other side, parentheses, Kimball, close parentheses, there are Banks. My Aunt Jean married a Carl McLaughlin, Jeffrey. That's it. No salutation, no question, just two virtually meaningless sentences and his name. At the time, I got to say, I was annoyed. I replied and I said I'd get back to him, which admittedly I did not do. He never actually asked me for anything. So honestly, I really forgot about it. His New Year's Eve message was not any better. The subject line was DNA and it read, you have not got back to me, Jeffrey. Okay, so yes, he should have said gotten and that kind of annoyed me. But is this just me? I mean, rude much? Got back to him with what? He never even had the grace to ask a question in the first place. I don't even know what he expected. He just showed up and demanded. I replied, but I was curt, and I told him off a little bit for his rudeness. The moral of the story is this. When you ask for help, ask nicely. Rule of thumb, say hi and say why. Show respect for other researchers and their time, and they'll be inspired to do the same for you. Don't be a Jeffrey. With online etiquette in mind, another important part of working in Ancestry is personalizing your profile. For those of you keeping track, this isn't applicable to FamilySearch because the nature of the site is different. As we discussed in Episode 5, FamilySearch is one world tree with one electronic version of every person who actually lived on the planet. A family search account gains you access to that world tree, but it doesn't do much else. You don't have a public profile on family search, just the ability to do work on site. On Ancestry, however, your tree is your own to edit and to share or not as you wish from your own account and from your own profile. Because genealogists are generally pleasant and collaborative, and Ancestry is built for cooperation, people will want to seek you out for information, especially if you test your DNA. You want to be recognizable as a person who can or is willing to perform certain kinds of tasks in your geographic area, or to participate with others in other forms of research. That means you want a username, a photo, and a description of yourself that is as useful to others as possible. 
the best practice is to take time on Ancestry just to create or update your profile. Forget about the research for a minute. Just work on that profile. Your username should reflect your real human identity. Add a good clear headshot photograph of just you. If you want people to recognize you on Facebook, use the same profile photo on Facebook and in Ancestry. That has actually helped me to find cousins. There is nothing more annoying to me than trying to figure out who someone is from their profile using only a nickname and a family crest, a photo of a pet, or some poorly lit group photo to consider. If a researcher names herself Fluffy206 and her profile photo is that of an adorable stripy kitten, I am not inclined to work with her. If she doesn't take herself seriously, I'm not going to take her seriously either. I mean, I'm a serious cat mom, but when it comes to genealogy, neither Tort nor Shukran have anything to do with my research. You don't have to be a genealogy professional to be taken seriously, but I'm not going to waste my time answering questions from dilettantes who masquerade as kittens. I know, that's harsh, but I told you that I would be, and I have standards, and I do not have time to waste. I mean, you know, a hundred trees. There are a lot of other fields to edit in your profile section. Do so with care and only disclose what you want to. Your privacy is absolutely yours to control. Options include your geographic location, your level of expertise, and the kinds of things that you're willing to do to work with other researchers, like going to the nearby historical society or taking a photo of an old building nearby. You can select your gender, age group, educational level, occupation, languages that you speak or read, lineage, and religion in your profile section as well. You can add your home page and favorite research sites and a list of your family surnames with the time periods and geographical areas you're searching. This will be of immense help to others in understanding why you are on Ancestry. Regarding best practice and privacy for your tree, Ancestry wants you to make your tree public at all times to maximize the chances of collaboration with people who can help you or whom you can help. Unless you say otherwise, Ancestry defaults to the public setting. You can also choose to keep your tree hidden from view and from searches or just private, which means it can be found in searches, but you have to invite individuals to be able to view it and you can control whether or not they see living people. I keep trees private for research and clients, and generally, I make my own tree public. Generally. But another facet of good citizenship in ancestry land is this. If you're unsure about the strength of your evidence, make your tree private. Bad research is like the flu. Don't let everybody catch yours by sneezing and hacking and coughing on them. Cover your mouth. Now, I've had to do this a few times when I found that on, during the early days when I was working in Ancestry, I took some stuff as truth that kind of wasn't truth because I thought everybody else on Ancestry was working to the same standards that I was. And um, that was a, a big mistake and a learning experience. And when I found out that I was wrong, I closed off my tree from everybody else and I went in and I mopped up with my genie mop. And that's sometimes what you need to do. But if you're just starting out, it's also really important to just kind of lay back, let your tree be private, do your work, and then, you know, when you feel more comfortable, make it available to others. Now, regarding best evidence and other people's trees, assume that they are crap. Seriously. Other people are lazy, 
undisciplined, or uneducated in the ways of research. If you're using other people's trees as evidence, stop it. Use the historical record. And if you are using other people's trees regularly and you blindly insist that they are right, you are one, poisoning the well for others with your badly researched haphazard tree, and two, probably too much of a hobbyist to be doing this work. While others may have access to family stories or documents that you don't, those situations are in the minority, an ancestry, in its purest and most ideal form. Genealogy is the implementation of interdisciplinary research methods to find the truth about ancestral lines of people in the historical record. While we do tap into folklore and other private records like letters and Bibles, genealogists are in the business of proving things. Do not blow up other people's work by making willful, unforced errors in your own tree and then letting those errors float out into the interwebs. Have I been mean enough? Good. More best practices. If you have your DNA, build a tree and attach your DNA to it. If you need help doing this, contact me and I will help you. If you have a tree and you can afford to do so, get your DNA tested. You can get 10% off an Ancestry DNA test at my website every day of the year. It's not just for you. You might well be able to use your research data and skills to help your cousins. And DNA matching with no tree attached to the results is useless to anyone trying to find family. There are people out there who were adopted, fostered, or who have unclear parentage or ancestry, and those of us who are clear should help. And even if you are 100% European-American, remember that you might well have African-American cousins whose documentary trail virtually ends in 1870. I don't know about you, but mine goes back to the 500s. If you're white and you test, be prepared to help black cousins with your own research. Help them find their family names and migratory paths. No excuses. Now, let's talk briefly about data. Yes, Virginia, there is a right way to format information to maximize your success when searching for records in Ancestry. On top of that, there's a shortcut way that I use with women's names and with dates. I'm going to give you those now. Working with Ancestry is just like talking to a person. Speak Ancestry's language to Ancestry, and Ancestry will cooperate. Speak Esperanto to Ancestry, and you're wasting your time and your money. And when you're in a professional space, be professional. Speak Ancestry. Speak genealogy. To speak Ancestry to Ancestry, understand that format is key. In order to turn up the most likely record hints and matches for your family, you must enter the right data in the right fields in the right way. Any data with a good guess behind it is better than no data at all, so educated guesses are a plus, but if you know the specifics, provide them. For names, there are three fields in Ancestry. First and middle name, last name, and suffix. Do not confuse them. Put all first and middle or confirmation names in the first name field. Put the last name of the person you are creating in the last name field. If the person is a woman, and this is enormously important, put her maiden name, the name she was born with, in the last name field. Think about the logic. If Mary Smith is married to John Jones, 
Are you going to find Mary's birth certificate under the name Mary Jones? Of course not. She was not born married. I know it's hard to hear, fellas, but we do have our own identities long before we meet you. I have a further shorthand for you. If you don't know what to enter for a woman's maiden name because you don't have any evidence yet, put her husband's last name in parentheses in that last name field. If she was married four times, put each husband's last name in the field, each in parentheses. Then if they're not there in your tree already, create each of those husbands for each of those last names. It's easier than it sounds. You just make a new profile for the husband and you borrow that wife's birth year, since most married couples are roughly the same age when they're married, and type the word about in front of the year in that new hubby's profile. So all that new hubby has is last name, as you've taken it from wife, and then you've got about and then birth year in the birth year field. The parentheses around the last name in her profile will serve as a reminder to you that you don't have her maiden name yet, and it won't interfere with Ancestry's ability to look around and find matching records. Ancestry will continue to look for the woman in records associated with all of the surnames you've provided and might well pull up something like a marriage record. Another Jeffrey moment for you. I periodically encounter people in Facebook genie groups who proudly insist upon putting MNU, which stands for Maiden Name Unknown, in the last name field for women whose maiden names they haven't found yet. These researchers inevitably can't figure out why Ancestry doesn't turn up hints for the unknown maiden names. When such researchers are told by me or by somebody else that Ancestry is now looking for a woman with the last name Manu, because that's the research hint that the researcher provided, these people get annoyed, they get fragile, and they stomp off in the other direction saying, oh, well, I'm going to do genealogy my way. And they do, badly and unsuccessfully. These people are Jeffreys. Don't be a Jeffrey. Another maiden name point. African-American culture has a naming format that allows for women to hyphenate their parents' last names or hyphenate maiden and married names in life and throughout life. Don't do this in genealogy. Use a woman's maiden name only, the name that's on her birth certificate. You want to be able to find her and follow her in census records and other records that reflect her existence as a child before her marriage. The same goes for Latin American names. The traditional order of matronymics and patronymics being used together is a bit confusing to me, I admit, because I have not worked with a lot of Latin American trees yet, but even I understand that it actually, the order varies from country to country. So please make sure that the woman's name that you're using when you create her in your tree is her name at birth not her married name. I know I'm going on about this, but really, it's very important. The suffix field is the last name field, and it holds MD, Rev, Senior, Junior, Three, those kinds of things. It is not a name field. It's just one of the fields that defines a name. You see what I'm saying? Don't put anything in the suffix field unless you know it to be true from a verified record. The vast majority of the time, that field is left empty. Don't mess up your searches with bad information. 
Dates and places also have a best practice. They go from smallest unit to largest unit as you go left to right. So the date April 1st, 1911 would be entered as 1 April 1911. And you spell out the name of the month. Don't use a digit. For Americans, this is weird because we want to be special and we want to have slashes and dashes and put the month first and all kinds of nonsense. But in genealogy, we have to forsake being different and speak the language of genealogy. And that is the language of international date format. So the correct format is day number and then a space, the name of the month fully spelled out, and then a space and then the year. If you put in four one 1911, is going to get confused. It won't be sure whether you mean April 1st or January 4th. Always be clear about this. Once you're done with the stuff you know and you start moving backwards, your best practice with dates is a guess. If you don't know a parent's birth year, go backwards 20 years from the birth year of the oldest child whose data you have and enter the word about in front of that year. If your grandpa was born in 1911 and you don't know about your great-grandparents' birth years, subtract 20 and then just round it to the nearest five or zero year that would allow for an appropriate childbirth age. That's usually what I do. So 1911 minus 20 is 1891. There I would just enter the word about and then a space and then the digits for 1890-1890 as the birth year for both of the great-grandparents. That will give Ancestry food for thought. And without estimated years, Ancestry spins out over too many possibilities. It's just, it goes crazy. This is also go from smallest unit to largest unit. They go town, comma county, comma state, comma country. If you know nothing else, enter the country of birth or death. It will help Ancestry to narrow its search parameters. So what have we learned today? First, rudeness and vis are avoidable, so don't be a Jeffrey. Second, incomplete profiles are avoidable, so don't masquerade as a stripy kitten. Third, there is a right way to enter data, and there are shortcuts that will bring up more hints and create stronger search parameters for Ancestry when researching women. I'm going to close today with a bit of an NPR moment, (laughs) an NPR fundraising moment. I'm happy to say that I have my first Patreon supporters. Lori Collier and Dave and Jane Richards have signed on as financial supporters for the podcast, and I am very grateful. In a future episode, Lori will be coming on the show to discuss the particulars of how I won her over from working exclusively with FamilySearch to working with Ancestry and FamilySearch together. And you know that's my thing. David will be a guest on my first Tree Reveal episode. If you want to join these lovely folks in supporting this podcast for as little as five US dollars per month, please go to patreon.com slash ancestors alive and sign up. It takes me about seven hours to assemble an episode, sometimes eight, depends. My teaching rate is $50 per hour. So if you do that math, I need $350 per episode or $1,400 per month to break even on creating this podcast. And if we're counting my hourly rate as a researcher, you can double that. Now, it's not that I don't love teaching you guys because you know that I do, but every little bit helps to pay my way. A girl's got to feed the cats, right? Shukran and Tort love their fishy food and fishy food ain't free. I hope you'll consider the value of this podcast to you as you come back for more episodes. And of course, 
I do hope that you keep coming back. Thanks so much for listening today. If you podcast and you want groovy theme music like mine, and who wouldn't, email my good friend Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you. He can hook you up with original music in rock, blues, country, folk, most any genre that you can think of. As for me, you know me. I'm around. You can find me online at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on Facebook at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have a request, a dispute, a book recommendation, or you just want to say hi, you can contact me at AncestorsAliveGenealogy at gmail.com. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. And above all, expect surprises.